be in 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to finish up verses 19 through 27. We'll finish chapter 9, then we're going to take a long break from 1 Corinthians. Uh, these next few weeks, as Russ mentioned earlier, we're going to study Philippians 2, 1 through 11, an incarnational hymn that'll be appropriate for Christmas. And then beginning in the new year, we're going to begin and get partway through a series on Acts. Uh, we're going to look at how the church was formed and how the church was mobilized and how God continued the ministry of Jesus Christ by the Spirit through the church. So we'll enjoy that in the new year. But now we finish up 1 Corinthians 9. And as we begin, and just as a side note, I will say thank you uh, to all of you who are praying. And as Tom mentioned this morning, we love our family at the church. Also, I have a cold, so if I sniffle along the way through the sermon, that's what that is. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Are you somebody who likes change? Some of us do, some of us don't. Um, I tend to be somebody who really likes change. So when Maggie and I are going to watch a movie on a Friday night or something, I like to see something new. She likes to see something that we've seen many times before. She likes the comforting. I like the new experience. So I like to try new restaurants, and she likes to try uh, what we've always had. And we have learned to deal with each other's uh, proclivities in our marriage. Some people love change. Some people don't. I don't know which side you're on. Sometimes, though, change is necessary. Sometimes we have to change, we have to adapt. This is true for one professional ski jumper. He was going down the ramp well, then all of a sudden, right before he hit the jump, he crashed, kind of a weird place to crash, before he hit the jump, and he fell off the side of the ski jump, kind of horrifically. It looked like it was a huge mistake. He seemed to be in good form as he was heading down the slope. And for no apparent reason, lost control before he even hit the jump. What only the skier knew at that time was that the crash was intentional. The skier later related that he fell on purpose, the reason being the conditions on the slope were not good. They were, in fact, too fast, 
And as he was going, he feared that if he jumped successfully, he would actually land beyond where the slope was. And that would be a much harder crash on the flat surface. So he made a decision, changed course, and crashed earlier so that he might not suffer a harsher crash later. He adapted to survive. And sometimes... Such adaptation is necessary, and that's what we learned from the passage this morning. God, Paul's gospel ministry, he will make necessary changes, necessary adaptations to his ministry and to himself that he might serve the gospel well. The gospel should and must change the way we live. And it's not even that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us, and it does. It's not even that the gospel changes our future eternal destiny, and it does. But it's also that the gospel should change the way we approach daily life. If we believe this gospel, we will change the way we live as Paul does here. So as we go through this passage, we're going to split up into two sections, and both of those sections answer the question of how should the gospel alter our approach to life? There's our driving question for this morning. How should the gospel alter our approach to life? How should it change our course on just on a daily level? How do we need to adapt because of the truth of the gospel? How should the gospel alter, alter our approach to life? Before I get into the text, I want to clarify, this is important, what the gospel is, or what it is that we're celebrating this season in the gospel. This Christmas season, what do we celebrate? We celebrate the incarnation. What does that mean? Well, what does carne mean? Flesh. Meat. Right? Like chili con carne. That's chili with meat. So the incarnation is God taking on flesh. The eternal, invisible, immortal God who is spirit. Eternally existing Father, Son, and Spirit. We celebrate in the Christmas season that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is spirit, took on flesh, was born a human. It is the incarnation. The invisible God becoming Visible, fleshly, human. That is a profound change. The Son who had all right and all freedom to exist as the invisible God forever made a sacrifice just in the incarnation of taking on weakness, adding on humanity, adding on frailty, mortality, God took on flesh, the Son freely giving up his rights and his freedoms as God and bound himself to the chains of humanity, all the while remaining God. That is the miracle of the Incarnation. I heard a quote uh, just recently that said it this way, and this is appropriate for the rest of the sermon, so keep this in your mind. The miracle of the Incarnation is that this one person became everything we are without ceasing to be everything he is. And why did the Son do that? Why did he give up his rights and freedoms as God? Jesus became like us 
to save us. He became human to live as a human, to follow God as a human, to be obedient as a human, to minister as a human, to suffer as a human, to die on the cross as a human, to die for our sins as a human, to be buried as a human, then to rise again from the dead and defeat death as a human so that humans might be forgiven, so that humans might defeat the grave, and so humans might be resurrected with him, and that we, if we follow Jesus Christ and believe in him, repent of sins, and worship him, we will live with him forever. That is the gospel, that is the good news, that God became like us to save us. It was a rescue mission. Maybe you've seen this kind of thing in a movie before, where the hero intentionally goes into prison and is incarcerated to break somebody out. I think Tom Cruise does this in one of the Mission Impossible movies. Goes into prison, becomes like them, so that he can make contact and break out of the prison and cause them to be free. The incarnation is a jailbreak. It's a rescue mission. This is what God has done for us, to free us from sin and death. So knowing all that, how should we live? Knowing that this is what the Son has done for us, what God has done for us, How should we live if we are to be followers of Jesus Christ? If he gave up his rights and his freedoms and his uh, privileges as God to take on weakness, how should we as followers of Jesus Christ live? How should the gospel alter our approach to life? So the first answer we see is verses 19 through 23. This is, in some ways, you could call Paul's response to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He has an incarnational ministry. We'll see here that Paul directs his liberty for gospel reception. Paul directs his liberty for gospel reception. He is going to make adaptations. He's going to lay down his freedoms and his rights for the sake of the hearing of the gospel. And that'll drive everything that he does. Paul directs his liberty for gospel reception. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. It's important to note here that Paul begins by strongly asserting his freedom. That is his first word. I am free. And that's really the point he's been making for this last little bit in 1 Corinthians. I'm free, if I wanted to, to eat food sacrificed to idols, but I won't. I am free. I have the right to be paid for my apostolic ministry but I'm not going to, because I want to be free from any obligation or any strings to anybody who might pay me. I want to be free to speak the gospel truth. That's what Paul's been talking about in these last few passages. Most of all, Paul is free from sin and death in Jesus Christ and its consequences. He is a free man. And with all of his freedom, Paul says, I became a servant. I'll be enslaved. 
And that would be shocking to hear. In that culture, in the Greco-Roman world of that time, one of the classic distinguishers of humans, one of the ways you classify people, are you slave or are you free? That is an important status thing. Are you a free person or a slave? One Roman jurist by the name of Gaius, who lived in the second century, said, the principal distinction made by the law of persons is this, that all human beings are either free or slaves. So in his mind, that is what marks people out. You're either in one of these categories, you're free or slave, and who wouldn't want to be a free person? That was an important status marker. And Paul says, I'm going to give up that freedom and willingly be enslaved. He's going to give up his rights as a free person and serve others. He's just following Jesus in this. He understood what Jesus meant in Mark 10, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul knows that to follow Christ is to be a servant, to enslave yourself to others. So how is he going to do it? And that's what he explains. In a few different categories, he talks about how he's going to be a servant to all people. So he says, first, he became a Jew to the Jews. That's the second surprising thing Paul said. Why is that surprising? Paul is a Jew. Well, what does it mean that he became a Jew? He, he is Jewish. That would be like me saying... To the white millennials of the Pacific Northwest, I became a white millennial of the Pacific Northwest. You say, well, that's what you are. You're from the Pacific Northwest. You're a white millennial. What are you talking about? You didn't become that. You are that. But Paul has had his categories shifted by the gospel. So that in one hand, he can call himself a Jew of Jews as he does in Philippians 3. I have observed the law. I have been trained in it. I am by ethnicity a Jew. I meet all the markers and the categories of Jewish. That is Paul, a Jew of Jews. And yet, he can say, but that doesn't chiefly identify me. First, I am a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. I am in Christ, and that is my supreme identification, my label. So that he can drop his Jewish label and use it or lose it as he sees fit, because that is not what chiefly identifies him. That is dynamite in our world today. Consider how controversial this would be, that you can say, my religious, cultural, ethnic background is not my primary identifier. First and foremost, I'm a Christian. That is not how our world thinks. You may have noticed this. There is a very real push to categorize everybody and separate them by ethnic and cultural background, such that you can only say something if you are from that ethnic or cultural background. And while there is some credence to the idea that different backgrounds will bring about different perspectives, that is true. Scripture doesn't deny that. Scripture also affirms that our primary identifier is not our cultural background, 
but who we are in Jesus Christ. And that culture is primary, and that defines everything for us so that we can lose whatever cultural baggage we have. We can drop that or use it as we see fit, but first and foremost, we are in Christ. And that unites us. That labels us as who we are. There's something that unites all of us. First, that we are made in the image of God. Second, that we are in Christ. And that allegiance transcends all other allegiances. So Paul understands that, and because of that, he can be like a Jew if needed. He could be adaptable. Then you say, well, what does that mean for Paul to be like a Jew? Well, I think he tells us next. He says, to those under the law, I became like one under the law. So there he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant, the law that was given to Moses and Israel after they left Egypt and were at Sinai. God gave them a law, and that was a, a law that was to govern them, a covenant that was to govern them while they were God's people. And that covenant had stipulations, you know, all the 600 plus commands of the Old Testament. Uh, that, that old covenant was to define how they lived, and if they lived according to those principles, God would bless them. They would remain in the land and be fruitful. If they went against the law, there would be curses for disobedience and they'd be removed. That is the old covenant law. And, and with that law came all sorts of principles, rules, traditions that were to be followed. And Jewish people believe they are under that Mosaic covenant and obligated to it. Paul says otherwise. Why? Because Christ has come and fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ has perfectly obeyed the law and fulfilled it. And by perfectly obeying it on our behalf, Jesus has secured all the blessings from the law. He has taken on the curse of the law for disobedience and taken it all on himself so that we who are in Jesus Christ, are free from the burdens of the law because it has been kept in Jesus Christ. It's been fulfilled perfectly. So we're no longer under it because it no longer applies to us. This is what Paul says in Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Or Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God said, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We've been redeemed from under the law. We're no longer enslaved to it. Or Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Or Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians, as a book, is pretty much all about how God has set us free from the law and its curse in Jesus Christ. So we're no longer bound to it, no longer obligated to it. But not all know that. There are still Jews who do not understand that Christ is the Messiah who has set us free. So Paul says, to those people who are still burdened by this, I'll go on and I'll take on the traditions and customs of the law so that I might gain a hearing among them. That's why he has Timothy circumcised. Talk about evangelism. Timothy, an adult male, 
He'll be circumcised. Why? So that he might gain a hearing among Jews so that he can go and speak in the synagogues and live among them so that they might hear about Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't practice the law in those cases because he needs to. He speaks very clearly in Galatians and elsewhere about those who think they can be saved by the law. Paul has strong words for them. We don't practice the law because we think it might save us. We don't have to be bound by the Mosaic Covenant because it can't save us. But Paul, in certain contexts with Jews, will take on those practices again so that he might gain a hearing. Alternatively, when he's around Gentiles, he'll act like a Gentile. To those outside the law, he'll live as one outside the law, outside the Mosaic Covenant. He doesn't feel the burden to practice those things when he's with Gentiles. So one example of this, there are certain things that Gentiles felt the freedom to do that um, Jews would not. It may be one of those things was actually athletic events. Common in Greek culture, we'll get to that. But there were games that were held in Corinth, and there's evidence that Jews saw those as pagan events and would stay away from them. A lot of Jews, there's also evidence that some Jews had special seating in those, so they really wanted to go and they had their private box. So depending on who he was talking to, some people may have felt freedom or not. It is apparent that Paul was pretty familiar and comfortable with athletic events and probably felt freedom to go. And Paul would feel freedom to do all sorts of other things, like have a pulled pork sandwich, because he was free from the law. So in Christ, he had flexibility to adapt to different cultures and circumstances. Now here's the question. As one not under the law, not under the Mosaic Covenant, how far can you go? This is a really important missiological question. In missions, how far outside the Mosaic Law, how far outside the law can you go in order to win people? To the Muslims, can you be a Muslim to win them for Jesus? How much can we act like those who are not believers, those who are not part of the body of Christ in order to win those to the body of Christ? I think we naturally have some guidelines as Christians. And I think there are limits that Paul wouldn't cross. So we can hear him saying, you know, to the Gentiles I'll be a Gentile, to the Greeks I'll be a Greek. And take on some cultural practices and customs. I don't think we can imagine Paul saying, To the drunks, I'll be a drunk. Or to the sexually immoral, I'll be sexually immoral. To the gossips, I'll be a gossip. To the murderers, I'll be a murderer. To the idolaters, I'll be an idolater. In fact, Paul's just given some principles for not participating with idolatry. And will so again in 1 Corinthians. So there are limits. And we need wisdom to understand where those limits are, but there is a principle that he'll be flexible. And Paul guides us, and he says in Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So don't use your freedom to sin as an opportunity for the flesh. Do use your freedom to love and serve others. It makes practical sense. We need to have flexibility and rigidity as the missionaries in this world. If we become so much like the world around us that we cannot be distinguished from them, then we can't possibly save them to anything because we've just become them. What would we be winning them to? If we lose Christ altogether, then we cannot win people to Christ. 
And I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, I became outside the law, though not outside the law of God. I am still under the law of God and the law of Christ. Not under the Mosaic Covenant, but under the law of God and the law of Christ. So you ask, what is that? Like, what does that mean? To be under the law of Christ. My first answer would be, read your Bible. <laughs> That's how we know what the law of Christ is. We read our New Testament in particular. We read scriptures and we understand what the law of Christ is because scriptures are all about Christ. We read the Gospels and we see that's who Jesus is and we hear his teaching. And to follow that is to be under the law of Christ. And we read the rest of the New Testament, which explains Jesus, and we say, oh, that's what it means to be under the law of Christ. And in fact, we even have use for our Old Testament because our Old Testament is pointing us, the Old Covenant is pointing us to Jesus Christ so we can look at the ways in which the Old Testament, in all of its... Uh, ethics and principles about God and revealing who God is, we can look at that and say that is useful for us to show us who God is and who Jesus Christ is. So we're not bound to the specific regulations of the Mosaic Covenant, but we are to follow the ethics and principles that are universal, that are transcendent, that point us to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be under the law of Christ, to follow him. You say, okay, I need something more specific. Paul sums it up in Galatians. Again, Galatians is all about this. Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does it mean to be under the law of Christ? Love God. Love your neighbor. That's what Jesus taught. And that's what Paul will do with his neighbors. So that's what he'll do with his weak neighbors, to those who are weak. Again, referring back to here, those who he's been talking about, those who are sensitive about eating food, sacrifice, idols. Those people who have weak consciences are very sensitive. I'll be like them. I'll become weak out of love for them. I'll give up my position of freedom for them. And Paul's principle that sums it all up, we become all things to all people to save some. He knows he's not going to get everybody. He's read the parable of the seeds. He knows that. He knows that not all seed that is planted is going to spring up and survive. But he's going to do everything he possibly can so that some might live and some might be saved for the gospel. He'll do whatever it takes. He'll remove any barrier. He'll even give up his freedoms and his rights to do it. So that gives us a practice for our own lives. What are we willing to give up? What barriers would we remove for the sake of the gospel? What cultural sensitivities do we need in our own day and time that people might hear the gospel from our lips? D.A. Carson, writing on this passage, tells an interesting story, and I don't think I have all the details right, but I got the gist. Uh, there's a Scottish university. It had some Christian background, but the student population was mixed. It had people from all sorts of different countries, nationalities, religions, and tribes. And, um, but there was a choir in that Scottish university, and they were singing songs for the school, and there's a performance and a concert for all to attend. And they sang a song that had a strong message in it of Zion and Reclaiming Zion. And as they sang the song, about 75 Muslim students walked out. I 
And those Muslim students were not going to hear anything about Jesus Christ because they had just sang a song that was such a trigger for them. They weren't going to hear it. And you can have the debate as to whether that should have been a trigger or whether they should have even known or had any understanding that that would be a trigger. They may not have. But the point is, there are things we can do that are so offensive and unnecessarily offensive that it turns people off to hearing from us. And there are things we can do to make people hear us more. Great classic example, Hudson Taylor, his missionary efforts to China. What made Hudson Taylor ultimately effective as a missionary? Again, Dia Carson writes about him. He says, When in the last century, Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, started to wear his hair long and braided like Chinese men of the time and to put on their clothes and to eat their food, many of his fellow missionaries derided him. But Hudson Taylor had thought through what was essential to the gospel and was therefore non-negotiable and what was a cultural form that was neither here nor there and might in fact be an unnecessary barrier to the effective proclamation of the gospel. So then it's a question of, what are we willing to do? What customs will we take on? How far will we go so that others might hear us? So I'm going to risk offending people. I'll offend you so that we don't offend the world, right? This is why I don't think Christians should have political ads in their yards. Like, I'm even, like, my favorite hat is a gray one that has no logo on it. Like, I don't like to wear any logos or any symbols. I'll put on my Colorado Avalanche hockey jersey, right? <laughs> but other than that, like, I don't like to promote anything that isn't really Christ. And I'm really sensitive to that. But think about what you're doing when you wave the flag of a politician. Even if that politician is right in their convictions and they align with yours, if you wave the flag of that politician, you are automatically saying to a large majority of the population, you don't need to have a conversation with me. My agenda here is to win and to defeat you and to have the right opinion and the right vote. And I would ask, how is that effective for gospel ministry? What flag should we be waving as followers of Jesus? I'll go even further to offend us all, um, myself, I've appreciated our unity and love as a church as we've gone through the pandemic. One of the things I've prayed for and I've hoped for is that as we've had conversations about how we're going to respond to different things, that our chief and primary motivations in that would be love for each other and what will be the most effective for our gospel witness. And I haven't heard that conversation much in the broader evangelical world relating to a response to the pandemic. But that ought to be like the first thing that comes up when we're trying to think through what are we going to do, what will be most evangelistically effective? We may come to different conclusions on that, and we might not know the right answer, but my point is we should ask the question. Whatever we're doing, whatever we decide, wherever we land on, whatever it is, that question has to be asked, what will remove the most barriers for the sake of the gospel going out? How far can we bend? How far can we relinquish our own priorities and rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel? And we're going to have to work 
at making that a priority because in the days ahead, there are going to be temptations to fight. There already are. Temptations to want to be right at all times. And there are times where we're going to have to take offensive stances and positions to remain faithful to Jesus. But as we remain faithful, let us not be pugnacious or unnecessarily offensive. Why? I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. Just last note on that verse. Notice Paul's purpose there. His purpose is not to win people to himself. His purpose is not to be liked. Remember, Paul's going to be sent to jail and killed for his faith. He's not out here trying to be liked by everybody. So as a warning, that's not why we take on different cultural postures so that people will like us. We often justify what we do because we want to get people to like us. Well, I'm just being like them. Really, I just want to be liked by them. That's not Paul's motive. He'll do whatever he can. He'll flex. He'll be like people so that the purpose is the gospel itself, no matter how he's received. Paul directs his liberty for gospel reception. It's the first way his daily approach to life is altered. And second, more quickly, Paul disciplines his life for eternal reward. Verses 24 through 27. He's going to do all things for the gospel, and he's going to do all things for the reward at the end. Paul disciplines his life for eternal reward. He lives intentionally for eternity. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul has focus in his life that has led him to live a life that is disciplined and self-controlled, not unlike an athlete. And he goes to that athletic metaphor. So I mentioned earlier that there were games that were held in Corinth. They were the Isthmian Games. They were held every other year. They were one of four major Greek competitions along with the Olympics. The Isthmian Games, Olympics, and two others were part of four major athletic events held in the Greek world. This one was in Corinth every other year. So Paul is going to use the athletic metaphor here because it's apt for those in Corinth. It was a sports town. So just like us, right? And he'll use the analogy of running in a race, in a foot race. And he says, do you not know that in a race only one wins? And he's not saying that only one will have salvation in the end. He's talking about how hard they work and the reason they work and the reason they exercise hard and train hard in running is because only one wins. So they want to win, so they train hard. And the greater the exertion, the greater the chance of victory. And Paul says, this is how we should run, with effort. This is what should mark our daily life as Christians with discipline and effort for the sake of following the Lord. A lot of Christian paintings will tell you that long walks on the beach are the essence of Christianity. Here, Paul says, no, we train, we run hard. He's not advocating asceticism. Asceticism is uh, severely treating the body and harshly depriving yourself of things and cruelly treating your body almost by way of punishment. 
uh, thinking that that'll be a, a way lead to more godliness. That's asceticism. Paul speaks against that elsewhere. So he's not talking about severely beating yourself. He's talking about disciplining yourself, using what you have, self-control, to lead a godly life, the way athletes train. Athletes discipline themselves. So athletes notoriously are self-disciplined, and they have to be in good shape, except if you're like a pitcher or something. I think those guys don't have to be, or um, golfers, or you know, sometimes until Tiger Woods, he kind of changed that. Um, but athletes, by and large, are disciplined people. You think about what a modern athlete goes through. I say modern because I love... You can look at old pictures of hockey players in like the 50s and 60s, and they have pictures of them in the locker room in between periods smoking a cigarette. And, uh, and then I don't know how hard they trained. In the summer, they would take time off and party, and then they go to training camp, and that's where you get in shape, right? That's how athletes used to do it. Athletes, modern day, come to training camp in shape. And they have personal nutritions, they have um, personal skills coaches and uh, fitness coaches, uh, there's one player for, again, Colorado Avalanche, my team. There was a report over the summer that he didn't allow anybody else on the team to eat pasta through the whole year. They replaced all the chickpea pasta. I don't know if that's a rumor or true, but you get the idea of how fastidious they are about what they put in their body, the workout times, and all that. And they train hard. Why? For a crown that fades. And the crown that Paul's talking about there that athletes would win was a crown of leaves. Not like a gold king crown, but you think of the Olympics again, well, you have that picture of the Greek athlete who has the leaves put on their head. Often, actually, it was celery or parsley. So think about this. Athletes disciplining themselves, training themselves year-round until finally they can put on celery. <laughs> That's the picture. And Paul says, if they're doing that, like, shouldn't we be working for our crown? Elsewhere in Scripture called the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, that will be ours in the end. If they're going to work hard for celery, should we not lead disciplined, hard-working lives for the glory that we will receive in Jesus Christ at the end, the crown that will be placed on us. So he says, I, I don't run unintentionally. I, I, I don't go off course. I, I don't box as one beating the air. And that makes more sense to us. Or like we, don't, aren't, we don't think that's strange because we have things like Tybo and Kempo you know, that are workouts. But Paul's talking about somebody who's in the ring and he's just flailing about and doesn't care who he hits. No, as a boxer, you want to hit the person in front of you. You want to be intentional with your punches. You know, guard yourself, swing when the moment's right. Intentionality. That's what Paul's talking about. That's how I live my life. As one who thinks about what I'm doing intentionally so as to win the reward. It's not let go and let God. Although certainly we have to trust God. But Paul's advocating here a hard work ethic for Jesus. He does not give us a license for laziness. So just a question for all of us. I don't want this to be guilt-inducing, but I ask this because I know I need this because self-discipline is not one of my strengths. How are you living intentionally 
and disciplined for your eternal reward. What are you doing now? How are you ordering your life for the sake of following your Lord? We order our life for all sorts of other things. For sports. Sports might dominate our calendar. And I say this is one who loves sports. But we'll let it dominate our calendar and then what if whatever's left, we might do some Christian stuff. Better way to think about it when you get up in the morning, how can I use all my moments of the day, sports, school, work, whatever it is, all these things that are good, my freedoms that I have to play games and watch movies and hang out with friends, all these freedoms, all this time, all my money, all these things that God has given to me, how can I discipline all of them and use them for the sake of the gospel? And you can do that with sports or school or your work. But it's a question of how are you going to use them? Be disciplined for Jesus. And you say, well, I'm not very disciplined. I would say that I struggle with discipline. And yet, we can check Facebook every day. So apparently we are disciplined. There's all sorts of things we're disciplined to. Let's just be honest. We don't love God as we should. That's actually the problem. It's not that we lack discipline. Just we often love other things more. So we go before the Lord and we ask, how can he help us? So I know life is tiring. I know for some of you it's even hard to make it here on a Sunday morning. You say, I don't have the energy. The good news is you don't have to use yours. One of my favorite verses, Paul says, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Paul recognizes the toil and struggle of life, and he says, I do it all with his energy. He powerfully works within me. So we get up in the morning and we ask God, I may not have energy, but you do. I may not have power, but you do. So ask the Lord, how can I use my day to follow you? In Paul's great fear in verse 27, the danger, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. More and more as I live as a pastor, that's my goal. I've had a lot of spiritual heroes and mentors and men and women who have taught me all sorts of things. And the ones I look to now are just the ones who finish the race well. How can we discipline ourselves so that we finish well? Give up what we can easily give up, or even as hard to give up, for the sake of following the Lord well. How do we avoid traps that might throw us off course? I know time's running late. Can I give you seven very quick thoughts? 
on how we might stay the course and discipline ourselves well. These aren't new. It's basic Christian stuff, but I think that's the kind of stuff Paul's talking about. Keep going to church. Keep going to church to be encouraged and encourage others. That's one. Two, engage with other Christians. Because we're going to be weak at times, and we need others to help us. And those who stop engaging with other Christians are those that fall away. Three, we keep confessing sin regularly so that sin doesn't grow in us and root out life. Four, keep praising, worshiping, rejoicing. It's easy to lose joy and become bitter and negative. Keep praising, worshiping. Five, keep studying God's word so that our minds aren't deceived by the enemy. So we open our scriptures and have our minds sharpened. Six, we keep praying that God would give us grace to last because it all comes from him. And seven, keep trusting in Jesus, knowing that he must be the shepherd who guides us to his eternal pasture. It's not complicated, but it requires God-given devotion. And it's a daily thing. So how should the gospel alter our approach to life? Paul has given us two ways. Change our lives frequently for the sake of gospel evangelism so that others might hear. We change our lives daily, disciplining ourselves to follow the Lord in all that we do. We do it all to receive the reward at the end, to praise his name. Would you pray with me? Father, this is in some ways simple stuff, but really, really hard. We are people who want to cling to our our rights and our privileges and the things that we love, and um, often good things. But Lord, help us to be open-handed with those things, to discipline ourselves, to give up whatever we might need to give up in order to run the race well, in order to bring others to Jesus. Let us not hold so closely to things that we don't need to hold on to. Our preferences, privileges, let us hold them loosely so that we might cling to Christ more forcefully. And Lord, we don't have this power within ourselves. We ask that you would do it for us. We know you will because you sent your son in the first place for us so we can trust you to help us follow to the end. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of the one who saves us, Jesus Christ. Amen.